Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and 2000s. I'm one of your hosts, Emily Bejan. And I'm your other host, Margot Poupard. I don't know about you, Margot, but I was a pretty anxious kid growing up, as we've talked about on this show. I had a lot of irrational fears. Um, I've talked about my fear of Charles Entertainment Cheese <laughs> as a child in our Chuck E. Cheese backstory episode. I talked about still being traumatized over episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark? And today I share with you the fear that one day I would just randomly get slimed for no reason, no reason whatsoever. That fear isn't thanks to today's topic, Nickelodeon's wacky game show lineup. It's actually really funny that you bring it up because I rewatched some episodes of Legend of the Hidden Temple today and I... I didn't really think I could get stressed out because I'm like, oh, it's just a kid show. It's going to be fine. Like, I'm fine. Don't worry about it. But at the end, when the kid didn't make it out in time, I was screaming and I was oh immediately <laughs> sent back to how much anxiety the show caused me when they would get super close, like seconds away, but they like turned the wrong. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, yes, hard relate. I just get very overly invested. I don't know, but it's stressful to me because you have the countdown clock and then people are heckling you and everyone's watching you and then you just get trapped in the forest and you can't find your way out. And then it's all over for you. It's you don't get to go over. to Sanibel Island, Florida no. with your family all on you an all expense paid vacation. You get fucking boombox and rollerblades. Yeah, if you're lucky, if you're you get lucky. More. If you're lucky, you get more than a Sleeping Beauty VHS and a pat on the back, okay? <laughs> it's actually perfect. We picked this topic for this week because Paramount Plus actually just added a lot of these shows to their platform, including two of the four game shows we are talking about today. Oh, but please don't be confused. Paramount Plus did not pay for this episode. We just do it out of the goodness of our hearts. But Paramount Plus. <laughs> but we wouldn't Plus. refuse. <laughs> we would not refuse Paramount Plus money or even just a free Paramount Plus subscription. You know, you got to put these things out there. So, yeah. you know, this could be a sponsored episode. It's not. But We're it manifesting could. some wishes 
hear us out. As Kim Zolciak Beerman once said, ask, believe, receive, baby. (laughs) Before we get into some of these, because we couldn't cover all of them, there were so many shows, so little time. Is there a game show in particular that was your favorite during the heyday of Nickelodeon game shows? Oh, it was definitely Legends of the Hidden Temple. I was secretly so excited when you picked your shows and I got and you're like, yeah, if you want to do Legends, like, yes, of course. <laughs> but I was trying to keep it down. I I think this show is a, I kind of get into it a little bit, but this is like a precursor to like why I, I enjoy like American Ninja Warrior or even um, like the National Treasure movies. Like, I feel like it all kind of like ties back to the show because there were so many like elements of like lore, but then also adventure, but like safe adventure, like yes. where there's no real danger. <laughs> I would say Legends of the Hidden Temple was probably my favorite, but um, I would also say that um, Double Dare was a close second uh, just because of the weird like wackiness of it all, but like contained wackiness. Um, But after reading the behind the scenes, I don't think I would have stepped foot like yards from that place. It was disgusting. Oh, my God. I will get into it. (laughs) Well, I yeah. Reading up on like the different kinds of slime. I'm like, this is disgusting. You guys are monsters. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to get into a few of the recipes. And I apologize up front if anyone has a gag reflex. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's just get on with it. (laughs) So. Ultimately, before we do get into it, though, I have to note one last thing. This very much, after doing all this research, it kind of felt like these shows were all kind of some sort of breakfast club. You know, like if you were a jock, you Mm -hmm. would do guts. If you were like a history person or like, you know, a thinking person but with like a daring attitude, you would do Legends of the Hidden Temple. Like, and if you were like a weird kid, you'd probably go do Double Dare. Like every one of these had like a person that would be like your ideal type to be on the show. Would you agree? Definitely. This is the Are You the Carrie, Miranda, Charlotte, or Samantha of game shows for kids. 100%. So ultimately, you cannot get into the history of our first show today, Double Dare, without getting into history of Nickelodeon as a network. So Nickelodeon was first tested on December 1st, 1977, and launched April 1st, 1979. Happy belated 42nd birthday, Nickelodeon. That makes me feel very old. Um, It was the first cable network for children. It really didn't air much original programming for its first few years as a network. Most of the live action shows actually came from Canada, including You Can't Do That on Television, which is where Alanis Morissette got her start and where we get the concept of sliming someone. It should be noted that the slime recipe on that show was made using mostly oatmeal, which just sounds like a disaster. Yes. Hot lights. No way. No Clumpy. way. Oh, oh my God. Yes. What is wrong with these yes. people? And if any of you have been on a TV set before, like hot light. We want to talk to you. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say if you've been on one of these game shows. Oh, please. Yeah, that too. That too. That too. Enter 1986, when a few of the execs at Nickelodeon had been working on different things, and the network decides they want to have some sort of game show. They'd done some market research, found that kids enjoyed watching adult game shows with their parents, but there weren't really any on TV that featured kids as the contestants. Double Dare was initially pitched as a variation on the game Truth or Dare, but the group behind the show quickly realized they needed some sort of exciting finale, which is where the obstacle courses came in. 
There's a great oral history on Double Dare that the AV Club published a few years ago, which details the behind the scenes and where a lot of my info for today comes from. Co-creator and executive producer Jeffrey Darby's thought around the obstacle course was this. What would it look like to have a kid go through a Rube Goldberg machine? Basically, some sort of human mousetrap. They modeled the idea of the obstacle course based off of the ABC show from the 70s, The Battle of the Network Stars. And the initial concept was a lot like your standard military obstacle course. Think lots of ropes, not at all messy. After they shot the low-budget presentation pilot with Jeffrey Darby hosting in May 1986, they got the green light a month later. The biggest selling point when pitching it to Nickelodeon, Jeffrey Darby said he could keep the budget down to under $10,000 an episode. And this is, by the way, a common theme with all these Nick game shows. Like some of them, the budgets definitely go up over time, but ultimately they tried to keep it as low budget as possible. (laughs) A hundred percent. But I think, I mean, that's true of a lot of game shows. Oh, yeah. they're, so, they're cheap and easy to produce. It's why they keep rebooting, like, who wants to be a millionaire or whatever, or what all of those game shows that kind of, like, pop up on ABC when they have, like, spaces to fill. It's because they're cheap and you can produce them in-house, especially if you have the stage space, which at the time Nickelodeon definitely had the real estate. So interestingly enough, with studio space, they had to go elsewhere at the time um, just mm-hmm. for Double Dare. And they filmed the first few seasons of the show at the studios of the PBS affiliate WHYY TV in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where they were allowed to film in the new production wing and where production costs were significantly cheaper than filming in New York or LA. This is pre any sort of Nickelodeon studios in Orlando, Florida. So the host of Double Dare, uh, the finalists included Soupy Sales, who was like a big kids TV show host in the 50s and 60s. He was deemed like too old for it. And Dana Carvey, who actually right around that time got the offer to join the cast of SNL. So he was out of the picture. They ended up going with Mark Summers for the gig, who at the time was basically known for being a TV warm-up comedian. Um, And he actually attended the first audition in lieu of a friend who uh, didn't attend the audition. And apparently focus groups thought he was like 10 years younger than his age, which at the time was 30 Four, I feel so old, so attacked, and I just like couldn't believe this. Um, but he could never say on the show how old he was because of this. Oh, fun! <laughs> <laughs> the original concept, because I'll, I'll have you know, and this is common with a lot of Nickelodeon game shows. They went through several iterations. There's extreme versions, international versions, family versions, what have you, but. You basically would have two teams competing over two rounds, which began with a physical toss-up challenge. The winner would get money added to their score and control the round. After that toss-up, the host would ask trivia questions to the team in control. Each correct answer earns money, allows the team to maintain control. If you answer incorrectly um, or you don't answer within 10 seconds, you turn control over to the other team. Here's where the dare part comes in. The team answering can dare the other team to answer the question, which will double the value. And then in response, the opponents can double dare to quadruple it. After that double dare, the team uh, needs to either answer the question or do a physical challenge. The second round is basically the same thing with the question values doubled. The winning team would then go on to an obstacle course that had around eight rounds you had to complete in 60 seconds. Again, Crazy things in this sh- uh, this whole Nickelodeon game show world. Everything is like you have to complete it in like 60 seconds or two minutes or I don't know how these kids did it. The object of each round was to capture the flag, 
whether it was hidden in a pool of something or required you to go through something, each flag you captured, you and your teammate would get a prize with the final prize usually being a trip somewhere and later in Family Double Dare, some sort of car. Okay, so obviously Double Dare is best known for its courses. So when building the set and the obstacle course, the thought was basically around making human-sized versions of everything. Like think a hamster wheel or ensuring things could get as messy as possible. Some of the obstacle course portions were rather inexpensive to keep cost down, like having a flag in a, ba- in a balloon and the contestants had to pop a bunch to find them. Everyone, including Mark Summers, had a say in the idea pitches for obstacle course challenges. And according to set designers Jim Fenhagen and Byron Taylor, they could do basically whatever they wanted. They'd bring in a sketch of like someone where it's like the giant no- nose that someone had to reach into and go through to get some like Oh, Flag that out of fucking nose. I know. I see I that was, nose. Oh. I see that nose in my fucking nightmares. I oh. swear. It's so Haunting. gross. Haunting. I have one of those, you know, those like Groucho Marx glasses with the eyebrows, but the giant nose reminds me of the double dare nose where people will just climb up. I don't know. Haunting. I think that coupled with the Rugrats episode where they go in Chucky's stomach, I'm like, I, I can't. I just don't want to be that close to people's no. insides. No, no. <laughs> Not, no. (laughs) The really popular one or one of the popular ones was the Sunday slide. Darby in this interview talked about how it cost them like $500 to get the slide. And basically they just needed to paint it, add some pads at the end of it, and then some sort of gross stuff to make it slippery and messy. They were working on a budget. So if you look back on the Double Dare set, The set designers and the set shop they worked with, which was called Bruce and Bruce, did a lot of painting by hand. And since a lot of it was created in the 80s, it was styled to look a lot like the Memphis group. So you'll see like a lot of, you know, checkerboard prints, bright colors, like very, very like mid 80s. All in all, they had about 40 obstacles. So they keep a few of the bigger, heavier ones on set for a few days as they were filming multiple episodes and then wheel in and out some of the smaller ones to mix and match. They'd also film a few episodes in one day with the same course, but ensure that like no two episodes from that day would air in the same week. And then they'd also kind of rotate off. So they'd start, you know, on one episode they'd filming, they'd do the course from numbers one through eight. And then in the next episode they filmed, they'd start at four and then work their way to three and so on and so forth. Um, So basically they rotated things off to kind of keep it moving um, as they were filming kind of different variations, but to keep the budget the same and to like, minimize the moving that had to be done around. They kind of uh, would film around that with all sorts of TV magic. They would test the courses out and had it down to a science around what they could use substance-wise and how much they could use to make it easier or harder. And in terms of having winners, they aim to have one winner per week, i.e. like one team making it through all eight obstacles in 60 seconds, which seems nuts. In terms of safety, because it was the 80s, (laughs) at the time, there really wasn't too much concern. I mean, you had a few handlers here and there, but if you're watching these episodes, like, it is nowhere near the type of handlers they had in, like, future Nickelodeon game shows. Latchkey children all the way. Case in point, the gumball machine obstacle that one kid had to climb up to, which almost touched the lights because it was so high. They had to go through an insurance assessment process at each season. Co-creator Mike Klinghoffer claims they only had one kid get hurt on set, which then Mark Summers said in his portion of the interview that he was like, actually, it was two. And this is why you should be talking to Mark Summers instead of these producers. (laughs) I got to appreciate Mark Summers still having that humor. 
one of the kids lied on his health forms, neglected to mention that he had broken like 17 bones in the past and had glass replacements. And the second kid looked like he had snapped his neck and his dad was an attorney and basically threatened to sue if they didn't get the TV he would have won during the course where he got seriously injured. So the producers agreed to give him the TV and they decided that they would never have a kid on the show again with lawyer parents. I mean, I think the problem goes beyond just the lawyer parents, you know, <laughs> like kids lie. I mean, oh. people people lie, period. But like, especially a kid motivated by an electronic that their parent won't give them. You know what I mean? Like, 100%. then you might as well just kill the fucking show. Yes. It's not the lawyer parents. One hundred percent. So I'm going to have to get into some of the disgusting stuff because like, it's just, you need to know. So no matter how much they clean the set, things would still smell awful after they put them in storage and brought them out for the next season. No Uh ass. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So basically the floors they use would smell like an, an old high school cafeteria after a few days. They also reused a lot of the whipped cream that they would use throughout the day when they could to like for budget reasons. It was a special thing they called baker's cream that would like melt less in under the hot lights, but it curdled pretty quickly still and turned some people off whipped cream forever, which understandably so. There was also a pool filled with cans of baked beans in one obstacle that after hours under the lights and after a few days of filming smelled like shit and The announcer, John Harvey, recalls that they called a truck in from the city of Philadelphia who cleaned out septic tanks, a.k.a. the honey wagon, to suck it out. And even that guy was like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. They would try using a lot of actual ingredients for obstacles in the beginning, but like ketchup and mustard with the vinegar and all that like would get in kids' eyes and it was just a liability. So they started using mostly pudding, food coloring, and some... Sort sort of, you know, what have you to kind of create foodstuffs. And ultimately, their slime recipe was mostly pudding, food coloring, and some sort of applesauce. Because Byron Taylor, one of the set designers, liked the translucent quality of it. In terms of Double Dare's premiere, they premiered on October 6, 1986, quickly more than tripled the viewership for Nickelodeon's afternoon lineup, becoming the most watched original daily program on cable television. At its peak, it was the highest rated live action show for kids ages 8 to 15, and half of Nickelodeon's operating profit in 1988 was due to the success of the show and its syndication. After that, a bunch of spit shows, uh, kids game shows showed up on other networks. And a year later, they moved to a version of the show called Super Sloppy Double Dare, which was like Double Dare, but even more disgusting. They were syndicating to 154 stations. Eventually, the franchise became so popular that by 1987, Fox, then a brand new network, had agreed to partner with Viacom to buy distribution rights to air new episodes, starting with by uh, February 22nd, 1988, which is the day after I was born. And then that is where they started um, the first iteration of Family Double Dare, which would then continue to air on Nickelodeon. So eventually, after Double Dare, Super Sloppy Double Dare, you had Family Double Dare, which began production in July of 1990 and ended July 24th, 1992. Ultimately, the reruns would continue to air throughout the mid-90s, and there were spinoffs of Double Dare in Canada, the UK, Australia, the Netherlands, Germany, India, and Brazil. Double Dare 2000 was announced on December 20th, 1999, and only lasted for about a year. Um, so it was it first aired on January 22nd, 2000, ended in September of 2000, and was hosted by Jason Harris. 
There was one final revival from 2018 to 2019 hosted by Liza Koshy, which was filmed in LA and throughout the 2010s, live versions of the show were played at the Nickelodeon Resort in Orlando and at San Diego Comic-Con. One final thing I should note, it's around 1990-ish when the show stops being produced and filmed in Philly and once in a while New York and moves over to the Nickelodeon Studios at Universal Studios, Orlando, Florida, location that you would hear at the end. And that is what I have on Double Dare. Well, that's a great segue into Legends of the Hidden Temple. I rewatched an episode today, and I was struck by the Michael Jackson thriller-era royalty-free theme song. And the combination of that plus the best ride at Disneyland, Indiana Jones, duh, makes this just an iconic game show. From the start, like, you are immediately brought back to 1993 when you are one well while the camera wanders through all these like fake rubber plants that are supposed to be like an exotic jungle and then you meet Olmec and you know it's time for Legends of the Hidden Temple the rooms oh they're filled with lost treasure are they protected by mysterious vaguely culturally appropriated guards bitch it's the 90s you know it is (laughs) and are the only two people able to help you just men, even if one man is basically just a sundial with glowing eyes? You bet your ass. Are you ready to have a mental breakdown because you can't assemble the silver monkey? Let's get into it. Okay. First of all, if you ever wondered why you're able to watch me, 49 episodes of back-to-back American Ninja Warrior, or why you really like National Treasure for more than just your ironic love of Nick Cage, you can probably trace a straight line back to Legends of the Hidden Temple. Legend of the Hidden Temple aired from 1993 to 1995 on Nickelodeon. It premiered on, and I'm sorry to tell you this, Emily, September 11th, 1993. (laughs) Oh, God. Created by David G. Stanley, Scott A. Stone, and Stephen Brown. It was hosted by Kirk Fogg, and the announcer voice of Olamec was D. Bradley Baker. He's like a legendary voiceover actor. Like every Disney Nickelodeon cartoon you can think of, he has been a voice on it, in addition to like video games and a bunch of other stuff. Nice. Legends of the Hidden Temple was filmed at the famed Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando, Florida. And if you've never seen the show before, the premise is six teams, red jaguars, blue barracudas, green monkeys, orange iguanas, purple parrots and silver snakes consisted of two kids one boy one girl and they compete to retrieve one of the historical artifacts that is hidden in the temple by performing physical stunts and answering questions based on history mythology and geography emily did you have a favorite team that you like to pretend to be on oh tie between the silver snakes and the blue barracudas obviously Okay, yeah. It's always the silver snakes because, like, fuck parrots, right? Like, I hate no. parrots. <laughs> no. Whack-ass purple parrots. All about the silver snakes, bitch. No. Sometimes the like red birds. jaguar. Mm-mm. Yeah, we're both anti-birds. <laughs> okay, so a little bit behind the scenes. The show was originally titled Secrets of the Haunted House. So instead of Mayan guards popping up on you, it'd be monsters who would jump out and scare the contestants while they tried to complete challenges within the haunted house. But when they went to Nickelodeon to pitch it, they said, we really like this idea, but monsters are kind of scary. Can we do something else? That's when they pivoted to a, quote, combination of Jeopardy and Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is pretty apropos, but like kids Jeopardy. And and like and by Jeopardy, it's like less trivia. It's like they tell you a story and then you have to answer questions based on that. But very Raiders of the Lost Ark. The set design is described as Mayan, but it feels a bit more broad than that. It just it feels like, I don't know, like, oh, jungle, like, I don't know, use your imagination. It didn't really feel quite Mayan, even though they constantly reminded us that it was, but probably because everything was made out of foam, that it didn't really have the same 
gravitas is like stone, perhaps. <laughs> the set included areas for different types of physical challenges. It started with a broad but shallow pool of water called the moat, a set of steps, the steps of knowledge, and a large two and a half floor vertical labyrinth known as the Hidden Temple. At the temple's gate, there was a talking Olmec head simply named Olmec. Olmec narrated the stories told in the steps of knowledge and throughout the temple game challenges. A majority of the contestants were locals from the surrounding Orlando, Florida area. One former contestant talked to the Orlando Sentinel in 1994 about the audition process. She said she did take a written test, run, climb a rope, and do pull-ups during the tryout. And I think that it, I do think it is that physically grueling because in one of the interviews I read, they talked about how like, it's just like a long fucking shoot day. And sometimes they're also shooting like multiple episodes. I talked about that a little bit and figure it out. They're shooting multiple episodes back to back. And so these kids... They are not used to it, and so they're exhausted. So that's why some kids, like, start crying when they can't, like, figure it out. Yeah, anyway. No pun not intended there. Any hoodle. So Legends of the Hidden Temple originally aired on the weekends at 6.30. Once it gained popularity, the show began airing on weekdays at 5.30, starting in February of 1994. Also in February of 1994, the show was renewed for 40 episodes in its second season, which is, like, these 90s numbers. Like, all of these game shows were greenlit in 40-episode orders. (laughs) Yeah, which is double hair. All in all, is like five hundred episodes. I'm like, oh my god, it's so crazy. The auditions for the new episodes took place at the end of February, and then production would follow from mid March to end of April. The second season of episodes began airing in June of '94, and then another forty episode third season was produced from February to March of 1995. So the gameplay. In each episode, it centered around a particular legend regarding an artifact, real or fictional, from around the world that found its way into the temple. Some artifacts were the Lawrence of Arabia headdress, an electrified key from Ben Franklin, a jewel-encrusted egg from Catherine the Great, or the episode that I watched today, the broken wing of Icarus. (gasps) I remember that. (laughs) In addition to providing an artifact, the legend also was important to other aspects of the show. The steps of knowledge used the questions based on the historical legend and the theme from the story was also translated into the theme of the temple games. Six teams of two contestants began a three-round competition to determine which team earned the quote-unquote right to enter the temple. So each round went like this. Round one was the moat. It was an all-play. Everyone has to attempt to cross a narrow swimming pool known as the moat. Sometimes you'd have to swing out to a rope net in the middle of the moat and climb it. Other times you'd have to like walk in and retrieve it, retrieve the rope and go back to the beginning and then like send it back for your other teammate because both teammates needed to make it across the moat. So once both teammates make it across the moat, they have to push a button that rings a gong and the first four teams to cross the moat and ring their gongs advance to second round. The second round was the Steps of Knowledge. The remaining teams stand at the top of the Steps of Knowledge, which is really just four steps. Olmec starts the round by telling teams about the episode's legend and then the featured artifact, which then translate into the theme for the remainder of the episode. The last team standing will have to search for the artifact in the final round. So at the end of the legend, Olmec tells, the, tells all of the teams which room the artifact could be found in. After, he asks the team a series of questions to test their memory, each is multiple choice with three possible answers. A team attempting to answer a question stomps on a button on their stair that causes the whole thing to light up. And then if they get it right, they get to move down a level. If a team answers incorrectly or runs out of time, they have three seconds. Again, back to what you were saying, Emily, of like this super short amount of time. So if they don't answer in three seconds, the other teams are given a chance to answer. And the first two teams to make it to the bottom of the stairs advance to the next round. And the next round is Temple Games. The two remaining teams compete in three physical challenges to earn the pendants of life, which the winning team uses in the final round. 
the games are more or less unique to the theme, but each game lasted 60 seconds and one member from each team would compete head to head in the first two and then it was two on two in the last round. After each challenge, the winning team would receive some portion of the protective pendant of life. The first two challenges, it was worth a half pendant. And then the last challenge is a whole pendant. Whoever earned the most pendants wins the quote unquote right to enter the temple. In the event, each team has the same amount of pendants. So if you won both halves of the pendant in the first two and then the person, the other team wins the whole pendant at the end, you then go into a lightning round, which is just one question. And the first team to answer the question correctly, if they get it right, get to go into the temple. Originally, a team buzzed in and gave an incorrect answer or ran out of time. They automatically lost, allowing the other team to advance by default. However, in later seasons, since they had 40 episodes per season to work this out, the other team was required to answer the question correctly in order to go to the temple or else they would just ask another question. Now, the final round, the temple run. I can confirm, like I said earlier, that the final temple run is just as stressful as an adult, especially oh when you watch them go the wrong way. It's oh always behind you, bro. It's always behind uh. you. And and the anxiety really is like they give you three minutes. That's it. Three the winning team takes their little pendants of life, and then they've got three minutes to run through this. I mean, it must have been. It looks small on camera, but I imagine if you're a kid running through it, it's huge. Yes. So the team designates one member to enter the temple first. That person has to carry the pendant of life with them, and it has to be a full one. And the other one stands nearby at the ready should they be taken by one of the temple guards. Before starting, Olmec would explain the rooms in the temple and the necessary tasks within each room. The temple consists of 12 rooms, each with a specific theme like the throne room, the king's storeroom, the observatory, the shrine of the silver monkey, the heart room. There's just one room where they just... You just break vases to get, like, the key to open a door. <laughs> I was like, oh, those are called, like, those rage rooms or whatever now. Like, somebody charges, some hipster charges you, like, $50 an hour to do that now. You could just go on the show for free and just break them. <laughs> These rooms are all connected to adjacent rooms by doorways, although some of the doors are not necessarily what you what they appear. Sometimes they're on the ground. Sometimes they come from the floor. Sometimes they're locked. They're locked and they block a contestant's progress into the next room. There's a pattern of locking and unlocking doors that changes from episode to episode, depending on both the temple layout and the artifact location. Unlocked doors that could be closed at the start of the round could be opened by completing specific tasks or completing a puzzle. One room in the temple contained the themed artifact. Three other designated rooms held the temple guards. A contestant who has encountered a temple guard is forced to give up a full life pendant in order to continue. However, if the first contestant is caught without a pendant or they've already given their pendant away and get caught again, they are simply snatched and this dragged. Is, holy shit. This is what set me like down. This is the one reason why I was like a little terrified to be on Legends of the Hidden Temple. Like I wanted to be on it, but I also didn't want to be on it. It's like a um it's like a Halloween maze, except scarier because these people can touch you and like yes! grab you. And yes! I think there have been times I remember watching the show where the kid was legit caught off guard and scared and looked like they started to cry or were at least like really like freaked out by it at the very beginning. Oh my god. I know. Isn't that insane? <laughs> that they just let these strange people in like a fake Mayan costume drag a child out of the room because <laughs> they didn't have some bullshit pendant, like some goddamn troll toll. It is like, it's like, that I is definitely like, like Danny some, DeVito, you gotta it's like, pay the, the troll to get into this boy's <laughs> soul. <laughs> it's very um like Rumpelstiltskin, like kind of in a way. 
And it kind of goes back to like those stories that your parents tell you, like, you got to be good or else some like random person's going to like snatch you up. And then you watch it actually happen on a game show where no one does anything like that. That does something to kids. We're in therapy currently, you know? I had to talk to Mary about this. (laughs) Anyway. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. So they're dragged out. And so this, when, when your fellow castmate is dragged out of a temple, that's then your cue to run in and enter. If the contestant, though, has grabbed the artifact, all remaining temple guards Im- immediately vanish and all the locked doors open, allowing the contestant to escape unhindered. But... People get in their own way. As RuPaul would say, the inner saboteur takes over. And so some of these kids really choose the path that they did not need to travel. Like if you just did like you really didn't need to expend that much energy. But just because you don't make it out doesn't mean that you win a prize or sorry, just because you don't make it out with the artifact doesn't mean that you don't win any prizes for simply entering the temple. The team automatically wins like the first tier of prizes. If a team member picks up the artifact, you win the next tier. And then obviously, if you get the artifact safely out of the temple, well, then you're you're going to Sansibel Island, my friend. The show did really have good prizes, though. Like, on the episode that I watched alone, there was, like, a sick-ass, like, karaoke machine. I was like, fuck yeah, dude. They're, like, club-level karaoke. I'm like, what do 10-year-olds know about <laughs> club-level karaoke? Like, Casio Kitar. <laughs> I know. But some of the shittier prizes on the episode I watched was a VHS of Sleeping Beauty. But anyway. <laughs> so that was pretty much the overview of how every episode would go. In the end, in 1996... The Orlando Business Journal reported that Nickelodeon was considering renewing Legends for a fourth, I'm assuming, 40-episode order season. (laughs) But then Scott Fishman, then vice president of production at Nickelodeon, said the renewal was, quote, not a sure bet because Nickelodeon was producing a bunch of other cheap-ass game shows that were taped in Orlando. So production for the fourth season was stopped mid-year before it could be released, canceling it. Effectively, mid-filming. But there is a second life for this show, Following the series' conclusion, it aired in reruns on Nick Gas from 1999 to 2007, and then occasionally on Teen Nick's block, Nick Rewind, in 2015. In March 2009, TV Week reported that one of the creators, David Stanley, had acquired the rights to several of their old shows, including Legends of the Hidden Temple. In March 2016, Nickelodeon announced a TV movie version of the game, which I think is on Netflix now. It was directed by Joe Mendez and written by Johnny Umansky, Zach Hyatt, and Alex J. Reed. It features elements of the original show, including Olmec, the Steps of Knowledge, and cameos from a green monkey, a red jaguar, and a silver snake. Original host Kurt Fogg returns as a fictionalized version of himself, and D. Bradley Baker reprises his role as the voice of Olmec. Legends was nominated for multiple Cable Ace Awards, but won in January of 1995. And Here's the funniest postscript of them all. 
In December 2019, it was announced that a reboot aimed at adults would premiere in April of 2020 on Quibi. Although they got as far as casting for the reboot, as early as March of 2020, the announcement of Quibi shutting down all operations ended this production. You can stream this on Paramount+. Plus. Oh, my God. (laughs) The Quibi is, like, really the funniest part. And then I saw, I, I somehow found, like, a tweet of, like, the casting notice and... I actually think it, you know, it would have probably done well on Quibi, but yeah, it's fine. Just leave it. Just just leave Legends of the Hidden Temple. We have American Ninja Warrior. It's, uh, you know, it's funny you kept bringing up American Ninja Warrior because uh, my show that's coming up, Guts, was very much based on, you probably already guessed, American Gladiator. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it all makes a whole lot of sense. Um Really, this is a common theme with a lot of the kid game shows on Nickelodeon. They all are kind of junior versions of what was at the time a very popular show or something to that sort. Very much the case with Guts, which, by the way, doesn't stand for anything, was just kind of stylized in big capital letters. The show initially ran from September 19th, 1992 to December 10th, 1995 for four seasons with 160 episodes because Nickelodeon was doing, like you said, like 40 episode orders. A two season revival with 22 episodes would air in 2008 called My Family's Got Guts. And the original show was filmed on stage 21 at Universal Studios Florida, which was, by the way, the biggest studio because, I mean, if you rewatch episodes of Guts, you needed the space. It was intense. So I learned a lot about Guts's concept and creation from a great Sports Illustrated article. Of course, SI would have an article on Guts because it's all a bunch of former jocks. Nickelodeon decided they wanted an action sports show of some sort for kids. Byron Taylor, who I mentioned earlier, was one of the Double Dare designers, was a production designer on Guts, and he put together an animatic pitch with co-creator Scott Fishman and called it the ultimate challenge. The original concept was very Nickelodeon with some sort of slime-related finale, but then co-creator Albie Hecht came in on board and decided to position it to be more like an American Gladiators for kids, which was really big at the time. The concept was to take all the activities kids wanted to do in their spare time when playing outside and just kind of make it extreme and add budgie chords to just about anything. Basically, kind of like a dream sequence of like being like Mike, if you will. Case in point, elastic basketball, where the baskets were 11 feet high and with bungee cords so you could dunk like Michael Jordan. I'd like to take a moment to note that there was way more testing done in this show than there was on Double Dare, and rightfully so. They first tested all the obstacle courses and challenges with adults and then had kids test them out. Additionally, they had to adjust a lot of the bungee cord stuff to correspond to kids' weights to level the playing field, no pun intended. One of the other big concepts, no eliminations, which um, previous shows we just talked about all had some sort of elimination component or a final challenge that just involved one team. All three contestants would get to compete during each event. This was based on market research that Nickelodeon had done where they wanted to see a show where everyone kind of made it. The host was, of course, Mike O'Malley. And then they also officiated the show with a referee by the name of Maura Mo Quirk. My Family's Got Guts was hosted by Ben Lyons, which I did not realize. I just know him from E! News, but... (laughs) That was Hmm. fun to learn. Mike O'Malley, which everyone has been seeing in things forever, including Yes, Dear, Glee, a bunch of guest spots on TV shows, 
He had also hosted the Nickelodeon game show, Get the Picture. That's where he got his start, which ran for 115 episodes in 1991. In an ET interview, O'Malley talked about how he graduated from the University of New Hampshire in 1988, basically landed this first hosting gig at Nickelodeon at 24 years old, basically because he looked the part like he was playing a camp counselor or an older brother and really got the gig at guts because he was a giant Boston sports fan. They wanted someone who could make the show feel like an ESPN broadcast. So after he got the gig for get the picture, he got to tour around the country with Nickelodeon and that's where he was offered the hosting gig for guts. Moira got the gig after taking a job at Universal Studios while visiting her grandmother in Florida for a couple of weeks. She basically stayed in the U.S. after that. She's British, by the way. And she was cast because of her British accent, which the producers felt sounded authoritative. (laughs) The premise of Guts, if you don't remember, you have three contestants, one wearing blue, one wearing red, one wearing purple, who competed in four physical challenges. You would earn points for each challenge based on where you placed. The winner was determined by who scored the most points over the four challenges. Physical challenges included rafting through a pool with jets, a boot camp style obstacle course, a high jump done done with contestants harnessed to budgie cords, a similar challenge involving shooting basketballs, which I talked about earlier. Basically, these were all extreme versions of existing sports or physical activities because it was the 90s and we were into extreme everything. With the final challenge of the show being the aggro crag, or what, it, which is what it was called for seasons one to two, and because Nickelodeon loves to kick it up a notch, they called it the mega crag in season three, and then the super aggro crag, which just sounds like someone being an asshole. Um, it's an artificial rock the contestants would have to climb up while each hitting various targets and dodging pouring glitter, fog, and styrofoam rocks. Seriously, this show was an EPA violation with the amount of styrofoam they used in building the set and throwing things at kids. When it came to the aggro crag, there were multiple violations or errors that would land you in third place for that challenge. Those included crossing into another's player's section of the mountain, hitting someone else's targets, reaching at the top of the mountain and grabbing a handrail, making a false start, finishing the climb without lighting all the targets, and then not stepping on all the boulders in the crag's quote-unquote boulder canyon section. The total height of the aggro crag was 28 feet. And then for the mega crag, which is what they had for global guts, um, and the super aggro crag, the total height was 30 feet tall. In between rounds, they would interview contestants, much like a sports broadcast, and would provide replays of all the all-start moments these kids had during the courses. Each kid would also get to spill their guts. And I had to do that because that's what Mike O'Malley would do. Where Mike O'Malley (laughs) would give you a profile on where the contestant was from and what the hobbies were and what sports they played. In terms of casting, much like Legends of the Hidden Temple, uh, they cast mostly people from South Florida where Nickelodeon was doing a lot of their casting calls in local papers. Earlier, we talked about Double Dare where basically kind of anybody could be on Double Dare. You just kind of had to be a wacky kid who could, you know, do the little challenges here and there. But I feel like with Guts, you definitely had to have some sort of athletic ability. One of the former contestants said it would take like 12 hours to film a 30-minute show because, uh, as we talked about earlier, sometimes they would film certain segments of a show. So they'd film like 10 episodes in a 12-hour day, but they'd film the part one of each episode, you know, consecutively. And then they'd film the part two. So they wouldn't have to keep like resetting up all the obstacle courses or have the handlers in certain places. It just made things a lot easier. 
the contestants actually got to come up with those nicknames that they had. So you might remember it would be like, I don't know, I'm going to come up with one right now for you, Margo. Margo Magna Poupard. And I really hate that I came up with that. But essentially, they would come up with these terrible nicknames um, like Viper or Steel. Or if you're AJ McLean from the Backstreet Boys, AJ Mean McLean. So in terms of overall spinoffs with Guts, you had Guts All-Stars, which aired on July 25th, 1993. And that was a show that featured contestants who had achieved perfect scores on the show on previous episodes, which equated to 1,925 points because they had, you know, crazy jocks on the show. The three contestants would compete for college scholarships instead of the traditional prizes, with first place winning $2,500, second $1,500, and third place with $1,000. The final season of the show became Global Guts, which featured contestants from countries all over the world. These countries included the United States, Mexico, UK, Israel, Germany, Spain, Portugal, and the Commonwealth of Independent States, simply referred to as CIS on air, which included Georgia, Kazakhstan, Russia, and Ukraine. All right, early 90s politics. (laughs) The taping of Global Guts took place from July 12th, 1995 to August 15th, 1995, and episodes began airing September 5th, 1995. In addition to the medal ceremonies, which they had as part of Guts episodes at the end, they would raise flags just like the Olympics and would have a victory lap where all three contestants would run around the track draped in their home country's flag. This show is memorable for many reasons, but one of my favorites is that one of the contestants in an episode is a pre-Backstreet Boys AJ McLean, or should I say AJ Mean McLean, as Mike O'Malley nicknamed him, sadly, AJ, or Johnny No Name, as we also know him on the show. (laughs) Put respect on Johnny No Name's name. (laughs) Uh, he ended up placing time for him to make a comeback, Emily. He's going to do it. He'll tour with Chris Gaines. <laughs> I mean, I thought I read that Chris Gaines was like making a comeback too. That's the only reason why I say Johnny No Name has hath risen or hath, shall rise. Shall, he shall rise. <laughs> this is our post Easter episode, by the way. <laughs> AJ sadly placed second. He was beat by this girl named Jamie, who fucking kicked ass on three out of four challenges. When she spilled her guts, she played softball, basketball, soccer, and ran track, I believe. Our boy AJ, in his spare time, meanwhile, claimed to play basketball and be a cartoonist. He never stood a chance. The cartoonist part, like, when you told me, I'm still perplexed. Like, what... How? When? I mean, did he just say that? Did he really have, like, a background drawing stuff? Like, I just feel like I have so many questions now. Theory. And they're all dumb. Like, they're all dumb questions that shouldn't really be answered. But now I have them. And now what do I do? I have a theory to share. I wonder if this is right around the time Lou Pearlman approached him, because I believe he was the first of the Backstreet Boys. He was, yeah. He was. So I wonder if this was the time Lou Pearlman approached him and he was just like too embarrassed to talk about it. I don't know. Like that could have been it. I wonder. I'd love one day if we get to interview AJ McLean, this will be one of my questions. Um, There you go. Uh, More asking, believing and receiving. We're ready. (laughs) 
I'd also like to point out that the girl who plays third on this on this particular episode was 12 years old. And if I recall correctly, both AJ and Jamie were high schoolers. So there was a little bit of interesting um, divide around ages. Most of the kids on the show were high schoolers, though. Other former contestants included stuntwoman Anna Mercedes Morris, who coincidentally worked on an episode of Glee as Leah Michelle stunt double since Michael Malley played Kurt's dad on Glee. MLS, yeah, so yeah, he's Kurt's dad on Glee. MLS soccer player Bobby Boswell, Hamilton West End actor Gregory Haney, and Jana Helms, who was one of the all-star contestants from that special, who became a gymnast at SeaWorld. Sadly, she actually was um, paralyzed in an accident at SeaWorld when performing one of her routines. Um, But she is happily married and living in L.A. now. SeaWorld is just the I bad mean, place. Bad thing after bad thing. I hope Haunted. they have shut it down. Indeed. Shut it down. Hashtag watch Blackfish. Personal, <laughs> personal anecdote. I do have a minor scar by my left eye because when I was a kid, I was watching an episode of Guts and proceeded to jump on my parents' couch trying to simulate one of the obstacle courses, probably the aggro crag. I jumped off the couch and hit my head on the corner of a side table and had to get some stitches as a result. Thanks, Nickelodeon. I'm pretty sure they were the the way that Jackass was uh, responsible for a lot of teen boys being sent to the hospital. Nickelodeon was responsible for a lot of kids jumping off of furniture and hurting themselves. <laughs> but you know what show is really safe? You can't really hurt yourself. Figure it out. <laughs> Unlike Legends, Figure It Out was geared more towards children versus like preteens, which I think that like Guts was a little bit more preteen. So was Legends. I think all of the games that we've talked about have been have skewed perhaps over 10 versus Figure It Out, which kind of seemed like friendly to little kids as well. Mm-hmm. Figure It Out ran for four seasons from July of 1997 to December of 1999, originally hosted by Summer Sanders, a former Olympic swimmer. It was shot like Legends at Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando, Florida. Kids would have to have a special skill or a unique achievement that they'd keep a quote-unquote secret, and then a panel of four Nickelodeon celebrities try to guess their predetermined phrase that pops up on a board that's shaped like a head uh, that describes the contestant's talent. Figure It Out was described as a loose adaptation of What's My Line meets I've Got a Secret. Figure It Out was filmed in front of a live audience, but the episodes obviously didn't air live. But Summer Sanders, who also hosted NBA TV's Inside Stuff in New York during the week, would sometimes run into kids on the street and they'd get really upset thinking that like there wasn't going to be a new episode of Figure It Out. So she had to come up with a lie. So Sanders went on to say, I would joke with them and say, no, I have the fastest plane. I can get to Orlando in two minutes and 33 seconds, which is the length of a commercial break. (laughs) To be a contestant, video submissions had to be mailed in, and the Figure It Out producers would watch them all and then figure out who would be the next contestant. They filmed up to four episodes a day, which is wild because you'd think the amount of sliming that happens, it would really kind of slow things down. But each time a panelist got slimed, the entire set had to be cleaned, and the contestant who got slimed would have to leave to get showered and then go through hair and makeup all again. That's how you'd have like the same panel of people but like a rotating fourth chair the whole time because of all the sliming. And so speaking of slime... They obviously we had talked about there have been a couple of different recipes, but the recipe for figure it out was vanilla pudding and green food coloring. That's it. But they have to keep it refrigerated. So all of the reactions that you see on camera are people reacting to how cold Cold it is when it it hits you. To be fair, though, I'd rather have the cold um, slime than like the rotten. I don't want hot pudding. 
putting on me. Double dare like a disgusting mess. I will be freezing to death before feeling like shit. Yeah, I would rather have cold pudding than hot oatmeal or whatever, you know. And it's also why you'd see like Danny Tamborelli frequently eating some of it. So the gameplay worked like this. Each episode had two sets of three timed rounds. Originally, all were 60 seconds in length, but for the revival of different series, because they had just sort of like guts, they had different spinoffs of this going forward. There'd be two rounds at 60 seconds, and the third round would be played at 45 seconds. Anyway, the panel would take turns asking yes or no questions to try and guess the contestant's talent. For every yes answer, the panelist's turn continued. Once the panelist asks a question with a no answer, their turn would end, and then the next panelist would start. If at any time a panelist could not think of a question, they may pass their turn to the next panelist. Each panelist mentions a word. If their word matches up with the phrase on the board, the word would get turned over. The game board was called Billy the Answer Head during the original series run. They came up with different ones later on. I did not keep it because it didn't really matter, but we'll talk about the revival later. The game show board would show the phrases that people guessed along with blanks denoting the words that the panel had not solved yet, but there would be prepositions in between them, like an of or an and, that were provided automatically. A little bit like Game of Fortune, better known as Spin the Wheel, apparently, in my brain. (laughs) During the very early episodes of the show, synonyms of what the talent was was listed up on the board. So if the person with the talent could sing, they would say words like a carol, or if this person was known for throwing something very far, they'd say tossing. It was later changed to kind of make it a little bit harder. And so in that, they would also, the panelists would also have to guess the exact wording of it for the board to be fully revealed. The contestant wins a prize each time their talent remains unguessed. A prize for winning the third round is a trip similar to Legend of the Hidden Temple. In season one, prizes consisted mainly of like leftover props from the defunct shows like Double Dare and Legends of the Hidden Temple and Global Guts. And then they later oh, progressed yeah. into merchandise. Yeah, which I think is the funniest. That would have been the best to get old yeah. props from the old game shows. 100% because you know whatever boombox would have you combination they were offering would be like irrelevant in like two years time. Right. But you know what? A double dare obstacle, a piece of a double dare obstacle course is forever. Oh, decor. unfortunately for their parents, I'm sure. But <laughs> at some point they moved up to merchandise like an N64 and gift cards from like Foot Locker and Toys R Us. In round three, if one word is left unrevealed, each panelist takes a one final guess at what the contestant's talent is. Any correct words given during the final guesses are revealed during the game. The game ends when the panelist either guesses correctly or if no panelist or if no panelist guesses at all at the end. During each round, the panelists receive one clue as a hint to one of the words in the secret phrase. The clue is usually in the physical form of like an object. Sometimes like, you know, they'd have to put like a blindfold on and like touch something. Um, Other times it would be called the clue Kano or they give a sound or they'd have the charade brigade come out and act something out or the clue force. At the end of the game, the secret talent is revealed. The contestant demonstrates the talent or the skill with the host and the panel. Sometimes, like Summer Sanders got a talking to by a producer once because she was better at, like, spitting a cricket than a kid was. Like, you can't be, obviously, better at the kid's talent. Um, (laughs) You have to kind of, like, go down to the kid's level. But I had totally forgotten that she also participates in the talent as well. Like, they try to teach her something if she doesn't already know how to do it. And sometimes the panelists would get involved. Another element of the show was the secret slime action. In each game, from the start of round two on, a randomly selected member of the studio audience will play for a prize. 
the prize is essentially waiting to see who which panelists will complete the secret slime action. So if one or more panelists completes it, they will be slimed by the end of round three, especially when one of the panelists is trying to break the rules and they get a second chance, they'll definitely get slimed at the end. So Jay, the regular announcer for the original show, would disclose what the secret slime action is. In season one, the secret slime action could be triggered anytime after the end of round one, including between rounds, which was just chaos. And so I'm sure that's why they stopped doing that. And when the contestant is performing their secret and the audience member wins a prize, the action that's designated is typically something that's really easy and almost guaranteed, like touching a clue or looking to the left or looking to the right. When the secret slime action is triggered, all play stops, including the clock. While the panelist is slimed, the action is revealed, and then they do a slow-mo replay of the slime happening. After And then after that, gameplay resumes. And they'd have these helmets. I remember this now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they'd all have to put it on and be like a, a siren, kind of like a wah, yep. wah, and then yep. you would find out who would get slimed. So the celebrity panelists were kind of like the whole draw of the show. And... Three or all four would be people straight from Nickelodeon. The regulars of the, of the panel included all that cast members, Amanda Bynes, Loya Beth Denberg, Kevin Coplo, and Danny Tamborelli. Bynes, Coplo, and Tamborelli were notorious for frequently asking silly questions and acting really goofy and breaking the rules, while Denberg was the serious panelist who would always ask well-thought-out questions and was frequently the one to guess the secret phrase correctly. Only four panelists who appeared on every season of the show's or sorry, only four panelists appeared on every single season of the show's original run, and that was Coplo, Bynes, Tamborelli, and Irene Ng uh, from Mystery Files of Shelby Woo. Shelby Woo! Sorry, I love that show. <laughs> <laughs> so some like a quick little overview of season three and four and a little bit about the revival. Season three happened in the fall of 1998. The series became figured out colon family style, featuring two or three contestants who were all related. Usually it was like a parent child or a group of siblings. Sometimes in the second half, the panel would have a family member of the contestant come and join them. Sometimes the charade brigade would have a family member. Figure it out family style also features Little Billy. If the panelists figured out the contestant's secret, Little Billy, a miniature version of Billy the Answer Head, who was basically the same thing but shrunken down with hair and on wheels, would come out. Summer reads a question about the family talent, and each panelist would try to guess in one impossible answer. If they can't figure it out, and then little Billy would reveal and then would give the family another chance to win the grand prize. For certain episodes, Jay's mother, Joanne Dumas, filled in as the show's announcer. In season four of Fall of 99, the show was retitled yet again, Figure It Out, Colon Wild Style, and focused solely on the talents involving animals. Billy the Answer Head was reshaped into various animals. I definitely remember like every episode he was like, he's a monkey, he's a dog, he's oh, a yeah. cat, he's mm-hmm. a cow. During these episodes, the panelists went wild with hair and makeup and wigs, sporting a different distinctive look each time. Sometimes, instead of Jay doing the narration, some of it was narrated by Jay's dog, you know, hypothetically. Um, This was the only figure-it-out season that did not include Lori Beth Denberg. She had moved on to work on the Steve Harvey show. During these episodes, seven different panelists, such as Steve Burns, Shane Sweet, Aaron J. Dean, Christy Knowings, Kevin Coplo, permanently replaced Denberg swapping in and out of her chair. It was canceled and then put into inter-Nickelodeon syndication until summer of 2012 when they revived it and had a season five. It reverted back to its original title of Just Figure It Out, and Jeff Sutphen took over as host and L. Young took over as the announcer. The set, host, panelists, theme, music, and logo were all modified to, sure, to serve a more contemporary Nickelodeon audience. Gameplay was also slightly modified to include a word of honor component. They shortened the lengths of rounds 
And instead of having them be all 60 seconds, they were all 45 seconds. Billy the Answerhead was changed over to the It Board. The Clue, it's, the clue Express was named the Clue Coaster, stuff like that. Somehow it also got a season six that was that aired in the fall of 2012 and 2013. And that's sort of the end. I mean, I, I don't have anything else to add other than they revived it. It had another <laughs> season of it. I don't really care about the revival. In trying to rewatch, figure it out, it, it did feel like not as fun or high stakes as Legends, mm-hmm. e- even as an adult. It really did feel more geared towards kids. And the most notable person to have been on Figure It Out, who is now apparently a country star, whose name I have heard, but I don't know his music. Hunter Hayes apparently was oh, on yes. it as a little kid. Yes. And his talent was singing. Oh, yeah, he's like a big country star too. So that's kind of that's a big pull. That's funny that like the Nickelodeon game shows featured not one but two like major recording artists before they were famous. Um, I figured it would be fun to end the episode with an excerpt of prizes from a Double Dare episode in the eighties. Humor me if you will. Sure. All right. So if you would win, if you were able to pass and get the flag in the first obstacle in the obstacle course, you would get a Jammin' soundboard, which is a skateboard oh, with yeah. a built-in AM FM radio. Oh, what a nightmare for your neighbors. <laughs> course number two, you get a pair of kids' Ray-Bans. And this is like pre-Ray-Bans being like $150 a pair. This is when they were still like $30 a pair. Um oh. Course- we are we are older than dirt, Emily. Indeed. Course number three included a 35 millimeter Konica camera. Oh, I and remember that. I always wanted that fucking camera. Round four would get you a Magnum mountain bike. <laughs> I should have been an announcer on this show. Uh, really round- missed your calling. I missed my calling. Round five would get you a Nintendo Power Set, which was sort of like a DDR Wii Fit prototype for the 80s. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was kind of shitty. I kinda remember shitty. that one. Um, round six would get you a Casio guitar, which I believe was more of like a keytar situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, round seven would get you a VCR, and round eight, baby, gets you a trip to Bush Gardens in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> And this is definitely scenic scenic Tampa, Florida. (laughs) I think this is definitely pre Universal Studios filming days because, like, no kid from Florida would want who's like from Tampa would want to go to Bush Gardens in Tampa. (laughs) Oh goodness, those those prizes really it's it is wild to like. As soon as you hear it, you're like, I remember exactly what that looks like. And that is our episode for today. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. If you've liked what you heard, you can check out our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible Podcasts, Pocket Casts, and wherever you like to listen to podcasts. The best way to stay up to date on our latest episodes is to subscribe to our pod. And while you're there hitting that subscribe button, maybe you'll like to leave us a rating and a review. Additionally, we're on social media. You can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at the old millennials pod. Individually, you can find us on Twitter. I am at Emily A. Beijing. And I'm at Margs, she wrote. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. How 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 